The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Ms. Taggart? Oh, hello, Owen, please, have a seat. Thank you. Um, I've come to give you my resignation, effective immediately. Why? For a personal reason. Are you dissatisfied here? No. Have you received a better offer? No. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Are you ill? No. Are you leaving the city? No. But you no longer wish to work for Taggart Transcontinental? Miss Taggart, I assure you, um, no person, matter, or event connected to my job has anything to do with my decision to leave. I actually called you in here today to offer you a promotion. I wanted you to manage the Rio Norte line. That's, that's, that's very, very kind of you, Miss Taggart, but, um, my decision has been made. I'll double what any other railroad is offering. I won't be working for any railroad. But you will be working. Yes, um, look, I, I came to tell you I'm leaving because I promised you once that I would, and I want to keep my word. Write your own ticket, Owen. Name your price. I want you to stay. I'm sorry, Miss Taggart. So there's nothing I can offer you? Nothing. Nothing on earth. I'm sorry, Owen. I have to ask, and I'd like the truth. Why are you leaving? Who is John Galt? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 22nd, 2013. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Five one nine six six one thirty six hundred is always a number you can call to reach us if you want to join in on the discussion, or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today's show is going to be a bit of a direct continuation of last week's broadcast and an indirect continuation of a theme that has been running for all of our August broadcasts this summer thus far. I'm going to be talking about, strangely enough, working into all this theme of capitalism, journalism, free speech, and truths versus ha uh, falsehoods. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about, uh, strangely enough, Mark Emery and apparently the Toronto or the um, Montreal Film Festival is opening today, and they're finally going to be featuring that film that they made on Mark Emery called Citizen Mark, of which I'm in, and I'll be talking about that in the last quarter of the show. But it's not going to be about the pot issue. It's going to be about the Ayn Rand issue, believe it or not. Also going to be talking about the age of envy in which we apparently live in. Going to continue with my book review of Ayn Rand Nation, which we began last week, connecting some dots there. And the first question I want to ask opening the show is how much is that doggy in the window? But we'll get be getting that in a second. You know, the whole issue of of capitalism versus socialism and all the other issues combined there are, are among the most critical and fundamental issues 
and, and it's the most important discussion, I think, that we could possibly have about politics and the state of political turmoil in the world pretty well at almost any particular time in history. But here's what really caught me by surprise this week. I, even I was surprised by how deeply and subtly the average person's moral rejection of capitalism actually is. You know, if some people had their way, nobody would ever be singing that old hit, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? The preconditioned, the anti-capitalist, anti-business mentality is really deeply rooted, and I don't think this is healthy. And what amounts to this moral rejection and hatred of capitalism is really taught innocently to us at childhood, to most of us. And it can be taught with the best of intention. And, and, and anyone interested in hearing what the root of that process is should check out one of my personal favorite broadcasts of Just Right, and that happens to be show 259, broadcast in July of last year, which offered a great parable and example of that process in terms of uh, the show we did on how capitalism is taught at childhood. And we, in, we featured a great episode of Leave it to Beaver that just uh, made the case. If you haven't heard that show, check it out. Now, why Ayn Rand really matters to everyone? Here's a real-time, down-to-earth, actual example of what Rand was talking about in The Virtue of Selfishness that, you know, I heard this actual open-line debate on CJBK's Al Pervin show earlier this week in which both sides had a legitimate interest in issue to promote or defend, but it was also one in which both sides were expressing and harboring very explicit beliefs that self-interest somehow is an evil. And what's it all about? It's about a proposed ban on the sale of dogs and cats in pet stores here in London. And what I found interesting was, although the two sides here were, you could say they were fighting like cats and dogs, but both sides in the discussion were trapped in this mutual rejection of capitalism and their mutual acceptance of altruism as a moral code. Altruism, that's what Ayn Rand rejects, is altruism as a moral code. She doesn't reject charity and kindness and things like that. Now, apparently, London City Council is about to investigate banning the sale of dogs in pet stores. And the operative word here is sale. Even though there apparently is only one store in the city that sells dogs, and its owner religiously stays away from puppy mills. So I'm thinking, you, should, you wouldn't believe where the conversation actually went. Uh, issues like uh, puppies and profit. Do, gods ha or do, do dogs have souls? Are puppy mills a religious phenomenon? Seriously. These were some of the issues that actually surfaced on a segment of that show. I got the last word in, hopefully revealing some anti-capitalist prejudice that was at the root of the motivation behind banning these sales. And we'll certainly place that uh, clip online for you on our, our site after the show is aired today. But while at first the objections to selling cats and dogs seemed to come from those concerned with the welfare of animals, what I heard from those on that side of the issue had far less to do with that than with their objections to capitalism and business, you know, period. That was all there was to it. Now, the person I heard talking was uh, Judy Foster of the London Humane Society, and she appeared on the same broadcast of CJBK's Al Pervin show Tuesday morning, as did Mark Beatty of Pets Paradise, which apparently was identified as the only pet store in the city selling dogs specifically, while many others sell cats and kittens. So, Now, Mark Beatty of Pet Paradise came out quite explicitly and said, 
quote, we stay away from puppy mills like they have the plague, end quote. And he said he does sell cats, and uh, I think he does sell the occasional dog, but not from puppy mills. And he says his cats are basically supplied by overcrowded and understaffed animal shelters. The animals, he says, would probably have no place to go otherwise if he and other people like him didn't take them in. So when he was asked, like, well, why are they going after you? What's all this about? His answer was, uh, the, quote, the ignorant leading the misinformed, like most government crusades, end quote. And, of course, he has no relationship with any public animal shelter or regulator whatsoever. He's in private business, and he says nobody comes and inspects him. Nobody comes around and asks him questions. And the people that pass in these, these laws and regulations don't even come around to do a survey or ask how the business are run or how things are done. So, we all know who runs the puppy mills, he says. And he says most of them are run by religious groups. And the reason he said this was because according to the groups that are running these puppy mills, animals, they, they don't believe that animals have souls, so they think that it's okay to mistreat them in some way. And I thought that was an interesting side issue to come up. But that certainly wasn't the major issue. I thought maybe someone would reject it. But Judy Foster of the London Humane Society did not reject that claim. She seemed to suggest there was a lot of truth to it. But here's what she had to say, and then all of a sudden I started realizing, well, wait a minute, is she concerned with the animal welfare or is she concerned with something else? And here's what she said, uh, and this is Judy Foster, Executive Director of the London Humane Society. She said, quote, people are getting sales and adoptions mixed up. The bylaw was really intended to address the sale of pu puppies, cats, dogs, and kittens. It wasn't meant to stop adoptions. It was meant to stop sales. And when she was asked what the difference between the two was, Foster replied, quote, when people are selling cats, that means they're working through a distribution network. They're actually having animals bred to sell them. With adoptions, it should be understood that those animals are coming from places where they had a home and they lost their home. For example, she cites, PetSmart charities operate through the PetSmart stores, and they set up adoption partners. And they work with agencies and organizations like the Hum London Humane Society and other animal organizations, where those organizations bring in animals that need a home. They were removed or they were given up because they couldn't stay in the home that they had. But they weren't bred to be adopted. So you can see the difference here. It's about whether they're bred or what, and whether they're being sold for money. Then Foster suggested that the mistreatment of animals was a cultural, religious, communities kind of oriented thing. Though that wasn't how she would prefer to categorize it, but when asked why the problem isn't approached from that point of responsibility, or at that level, like in other words, why you're making the stores, you know, the place to do the banning, she responded, because a lot of these places, referring to the puppy mills now, it's very hard to identify where they are. And when they are identified, they usually re relocate because they tend to be operating without licenses and without knowledge or authority. So it's stopping it at the other end, where basically they're creating a situation where they're breeding all of these animals, but they're breeding them for money. They're breeding them for sale. They're breeding them for profit. You hear the operative words here? So if you cut out the cycle of where they're getting the money and where they're getting their reward from, that's a way of shutting them down too. 
In a situation like in London, she says, where we only have one store, hello, one store who won't take puppy mill dogs, so what is this about? It won't have the same impact as it would in a GTA. I don't know what she meant by that. What does that mean? They have five stores? Then she avoided admitting that the one store in question had to be Pets Paradise, whose owner already said, we stay away from puppy mills like they have the plague. So you can see the equation, what's going on here in this person's mind, perhaps quite innocently. On the one thing, she's talking about, you know, sales. They have this whole distribution system if you're in selling. And then she explains how the distribution works for the charities. It's the same thing. They have a distribution system, too. What's the difference? If, a distrib if having a distribution system is objectionable, you shouldn't have one either, should you? That's not what's objectionable, having a distribution system. Having What's objectionable to this mindset is production. Selling equals production. Breeding dogs means you're producing them. They're not, you're not just falling from the sky or from everything, which is all very nice to do. But you're breeding dogs for profit and reward. It's the profit and reward that is bothersome. You see, adoptions equal altruism and charity, because they're not bred to be adopted, whereas selling equals production and capitalism and profit and earning money, and that is evil. That's a political ideology at play. Can't you just hear it? You know, I think if I were to buy an animal, I would want to know it was bred for sale, because then I'd have a contract, maybe some kind of money-back guarantee. And at the bottom of all this, this is not really about money, but it's about values. And um, you know, never mind that whole issue about breeders, you know, and animals who have no souls. Also, there seems to be no policing involved. If these are really puppy mills and they're illegal, they don't seem to go after them. Now, what I found interesting about the whole discussion was that both sides in the discussion were trapped in this mutual rejection of capitalism and their mutual acceptance of altruism as this moral code. Each side was appealing to the public's concern and sympathy for the animals, when in fact that wasn't even what the conversation was about. It was all about money and trade. Just as in the legal versus illegal prostitution debate, it's never about the sex, it's about the money. You know, for the activists and do-gooders who want to ban the economic trade outright, you know, who want to hide their real motivation, that they're doing it for the money or to make, you know, make a living at it. So there's this accepted guilt about earning money, even when you're earning it honestly. And the issue, of course, is not really about money, it's about values. Money is not the determining factor as to whether breeders or sellers or of animals mistreat those animals. The determining factor is the moral code of those who are in charge of animals at any point in their care, not just at the point of an economic transaction. Uh, you know, the attack on pet stores, to me, makes no sense whatsoever from anything I've seen so far other than being an outright ideological attack on capitalism and business itself. The so-called puppy mills and other unlicensed operators are operating full-time, 24-7, not just at some time that a resale owner, pet shop owner, or customer, by the way, who's never brought up as a consideration here, because that's interesting, too. Um, but then they don't bring up that side of the equation. Have you ever wondered why the customer isn't brought up in the, in the equation? Because, of course, he's not doing it for monetary profit. He's a guy who's providing the money. He's spending. He is consuming. And I guess he's seen as the person who's, who's uh, financing it. The customer is the source of the profit. 
And so, there again, that's why I don't think they consider that person in the equation. Now, what all this has to do with animal welfare is anybody's guess, but that it has a lot to do with capitalism in Ayn Rand is my best guess, a conclusion arrived at solely by examining the evidence as presented and listening to the arguments as they presented them. Now, we were talking about uh, Ayn Rand last week as well, and we brought up Gary Weiss's book, Ayn Rand Nation. This is a guy who really hates Ayn Rand, and, he, and we were dealing with his chapter, uh, Why Ayn Rand Matters, which is actually the opening of his book, and I'm still not going to get past that point today. But we reviewed very quickly his, his um, what he called Rand's tribute to self-indulgence, and we discussed the virtue of selfishness. The major point of the virtue of selfishness, I think, being that Rand was making the argument that government had to be subordinated to the same moral code as the rest of us. And that was really her basic contention, that you can't have a government operating on its own moral code outside the, the morality of the people it's governing. I mean, if a government's governing us, it has to be based on the same moral code that we're operating on, doesn't it? That should be how it works, but apparently not. So to continue just from where we left off with uh, Gary Weiss's book last week, he writes, uh, you know, Rand once caused an immense ruckus by calling John F. Kennedy's new frontier, quote-unquote, fascist. Now, a half-century later, Rand is winning against the people who viewed her as a crackpot when she said that. End quote. Well, I just want to remind the author that Rand isn't in competition with anybody or with anything. Ayn Rand actually died in 1981, and she can't win anything anymore. Only we, the living, are in the position of winning anything. What's happening to some extent is that the truth is winning out to the falsehood thanks to the light of knowledge shone by Ayn Rand, something which can be understood and exercised by any individual, any time, on their own effort, in any place, and hence, individualism. After you get into Weiss's book for a while, you begin to realize that he thinks that it's all about winning elections, that an Ayn Rand is some kind of electoral candidate running for office. Rand wasn't even into politics as such. Sure, she talked about it in the, in the role of government, etc., but that's not an electoral interest in politics. And she certainly had no pretensions about ever running for office. There were no political options available to her in the United States. You could almost say that she, dis, you know, uh, she dismissed libertarians and libertarianism entirely. She hated conservatives more than liberals, whom she also despised. So who's the winner in that kind of equation? But here's an interesting statistic that I didn't get around to last week, speaking to the popularity of Ayn Rand, and he writes that apparently a total of 600,000 copies of Atlas Shrugged were sold in 2009. And in the same year, the Ayn Rand Institute gave away free of charge another 347,000 copies of the book to high schools in the United States and Canada. And in April 2011, the book hit number four in the Amazon rankings when a movie version of the novel was released. And uh, we talked about that last week, and you've heard some clips from the movie version, and we'll hear more as today's show goes on as well. And he writes, the free market thinkers Frederick Hayek and Ludwig von Mises surged in popularity too, but neither could match Rand in her sheer longevity, appeal to the young, and accessibility of her writer, write, writings to a broad national audience. 
And of course, he says that the Tea Party movement was directly inspired by Rand, and that the first Tea Party rallies were inspired by a fellow named Rick Santelli. And this is one of the things that I think bothers him a lot. And he sees other people who have been influenced by her, even religious people who are kind of opposed to Rand's atheism, and uh, people like Glenn Beck, etc. And uh, author and essayist David Frum, he quotes as observing in early 2010, that the tea, in 2010, that the Tea Party was trying to, quote, reinvent the GOP as the party of Ayn Rand, end quote. So there you have it. Why does Ayn Rand matter again? Same reason to Gary Weiss, that is, because she's popular. And to people like Gary Weiss, it's only when you're popular that you matter. And with that, we're going to go to our break again from Atlas Shrugged. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation on connecting the dots about this whole situation. Henry? Philip? What are you doing with yourself these days? I'm working for Friends of Global Awareness. I know them. What do you want? Money. Doesn't everyone? Call my office first thing in the morning. I'll authorize a hundred grand for you. You really don't care about helping the underprivileged, do you? No, Philip, I don't. But it'll make you happy. Well, it's not for me, Hank. It's for the benefit of the less privileged. Do you think I can't have the money wired to my account? A wire? Why? Well, the thing is, it's a progressive group. They wouldn't appreciate your name on a check. You're kidding me. It would embarrass us to have you on a list of our contributors. shouldn't have given Philip that money. By the way, I don't care what the industry says, Henry, Reardon Metal, it's terrific. I just hope you don't run into any trouble. What trouble? Well, you're not very popular, Hank. Well, I haven't heard any complaints from my customers. Yeah, that's not what I mean. You know what you should do? You ought to get yourself a, a good press agent to sell you to the public. It's my metal I'm selling, not me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But you don't want the public against you. Public opinion, eh, you know, can mean a lot. As far as I can tell, it doesn't mean a damn thing one way or another. The press is against you. They have time to waste. I don't. Well, they say you're intractable, you're ruthless, your only goal is to make money. My only goal is to make money. Yeah, but you shouldn't say it. Hank, I'm on your side. How's your band in Washington? Wesley Mouch. He's fine, I suppose. Good. It's important that your man in Washington is fine. What are you trying to imply, Paul? Is there something going on that I should know about? No. It's nothing. Just, you don't know who's loyal these days. What is wrong with the world, Paul? Well, I ask useless questions. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? Who is John Galt? 
and who is John Galt, of course, was the term that Ayn Rand created to, to build that mystery around the answer to that question, what is wrong with the world today? And that's really what the book attempted, the book Atlas Shrugged, that is, attempted to, to answer. And it apparently was very successful since it created not just a, a complete following of people, but also subsequent books that were written to explain what actually did happen in Atlas Shrugged. Two of those key books were um, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which was a, a, a non-fiction interpretation of what happened in Atlas Shrugged, as was the book The Virtue of Selfishness. Both books, again, bestsellers in the world. And again, people like Gary Weiss totally opposed to what is in those books. You know, he writes, and this is Gary Weiss speaking, Rand's concept of selfishness seemed to be an elaborate justification for oppressing the poor and middle class. When I thought of collectivism, he writes, I thought of free tuition. When Rand thought of collectivism, she thought of uh, starvation and the chaos and post-revolutionary Russia. Again, that's more proof that Weiss is a bit, uh, I don't know, is he incapable of abstracting? Is he unwilling, unable? You know, maybe he doesn't want to know about these ideas. Maybe he doesn't, there's a reason he's resisting them. But to grasp these ideas and processes, you know, free tuition, free tuition and starvation and chaos are just two stages of the same process. And again... In Quebec recently, they were part of the same stage when Quebec students rioted in the streets of Montreal and on campuses where they created complete chaos and even threatened students who were in classes with violent repercussions. Now, did I mention that what were they protesting over? It was free tuition. So is that just politics? You know, that's a question you, you would ask. Again, I have to stress that if you accept that government is above morality itself because that's what the protesting students were doing in Quebec. They weren't protesting, but they were engaged in what most of us would call criminal activity at any other time. Then writes Weiss, you may have guessed that I'm not a, f a fan of Ayn Rand, but if you're expecting an anti-Rand polemic, you'll likely be disappointed, which is how he concludes his introductory chapter. But surely I wasn't disappointed, even his complaints... Uh, are ins or compliments, or rather not complaints, it's compliments or insults in disguise. And nevertheless, he writes, dismissing Rand and her followers as cultists. Again, there's a polemic, and it never came up before in the, his part of the book. Ignores the strength of her appeal for nearly seven decades. No, not to crackpots, but to intelligent, educated, even brilliant people, he writes. And he refers again to Alan Greenspan, who in the early 50s fell under the sway of Rand and was one of the, the rising stars of uh, economists. What is it about her that people like Greenspan find so alluring? And that's the begging question, isn't it? What is it? Is it something about Rand? And, you know, does he have to ask the question kind of in this insulting way? <laughs> but what is it about people like Gary Weiss that pretends to be so blind by choice? What people find alluring about Rand is her ideas. And ideas are the one thing that you never see mentioned in Weiss's book other than in the sense that he rejects ideas entirely. Having ideas is being extreme, and it's clear from everything he says in his book. Intelligent, educated, and brilliant people are usually attracted by ideas and not by mystical cults, as he's implied. But what he does then is to add sort of an insult to this feigned ignorance, he makes it sound like ideas do matter to him and that he's open to a discussion on ideas. 
When he writes, and I mention this over and over again in this message, quote, In writing this book, I was acutely aware of my own ideological baggage, a long-held belief that capitalism needs to be controlled. And there again is the, 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 the mantra of all anti-capitalists. They want to control capitalism. Well, why not get rid of it entirely and have your own system? Why do you always want to control the system that you apparently object to? What is it about that system that's worth keeping that you only want to control it and that's good enough that, or must be good enough that you, that you don't want to destroy it entirely? I've always wondered about that, that angle. You never hear capitalists talking about wanting to control socialism. They want to get rid of it entirely. So there's, no, there's none of that going on. And then he vows, of course, to investigate the Rand phenomenon objectively, but never addresses his own, quote, belief that capitalism needs to be controlled. And that's exactly what conservatives and liberals and new Democrats and even ordinary Democrats of all stripes are saying and continue to say to this day. And that's exactly what Christia Freeland was saying in her column that we discussed a few weeks back. All collectivists are always on this same page on this. To them, government is the good. Government is the God, above the mere morality that we mere individuals have to live our lives by. So, if he is acutely aware of his own bias, then why not make the case against capitalism instead of attacking the person, Ayn Rand? or any of her followers or associates, which is pretty much what the rest of Ayn Rand Nation was dedicated to. And the reason, I think, is because he hasn't got a case like that. He's only got his self-stated belief, unsubstantiated by any uh, offered ideas or evidence, and so his frustration leads him to his only obvious option. If you can't kill the message, kill the messenger. Isn't that what they're all doing? But Ayn Rand, the messenger, again, she passed away many years ago. So Gary Weiss is that perfect caricature of so much of the media world that we live in today. Weiss could be any number of a host of, of reporters at, say, the London Free Press, or who are writing other books, or who are producing movies that we may be hearing about momentarily, or any host of political reporters who see this politics in only a one-dimensional way and just oblivious to the weight of logic and evidence against them. And it's because they're view is sort of, if you want to put it that way, their bias is passed on through publications like books and newspapers. People absorb it as being part of the truth if they don't take the time to investigate it on their own. And so that can have a very negative and harmful effect on everyone who is misinformed by them. Uh, writers are public figures, and hence, again, that's what we were getting into last week just as we close the show. We're talking about publications. And so, as such, should have a sense of responsibility to their public. That's one of the themes I want to get into in the second half of the show. And when we return, we're going to be taking a look at an article that I found in the National Post that has to do with Ayn Rand's own concept of the age of envy, but as it was expressed by someone else entirely. And we'll be back right after this. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think, there's a, I think there's a time to laugh. I don't think it's all the time. For example, uh, you wouldn't laugh during open heart surgery or an income tax audit, that type of thing. So tonight, if you'll... Uh, so tonight, um, you probably wonder what I was thinking about that got me so serious. So I know I did. Good. I'm going to tell you, I received a letter today which, well, it didn't anger me so much as it saddened and shocked me. If a person doesn't like this show, that is certainly his or her right. This isn't Russia. 
<laughs> but this person went on to claim that not once but many times I have abused this medium that I master. That I have used, that I've used the power of television to toot my own horn and, and advance my own financial interests. Jeez. I had hoped it wouldn't have come to this, but I'm afraid it has. I think it's time to clear the air and, and to make sort of a public vow in the presence of all the viewers of Channel 6 and the great viewer upstairs. Who probably gets all the channels. I'm sure he does, yes, sir. No I tuning make... problem up there, huh? No, he probably gets UHF. <laughs> I'll make you this vow. Uh, do we have a Bible here? I think we do. Well, I don't think we really need it. I, I can do it without a Bible. <laughs> Happy, can I have some vowing music, please? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, Barth Kimball, vow that I will use the great power of my position solely for the good of mankind and womankind. If there's anything I can do to help the good people of Fernwood, like the folks at Marty's Discount Jewelry, believe me, I'll do my part, whatever it is. Whether it's wearing a new Pulsar watch to replace the one I've had now for six lousy years, whether it's showing off a gold ring with my birthstone, which is Topaz for the month of August, if I can lend my name and support to any worthwhile community project or viable business, just call. And this is not limited just to the businesses that already exist in Fernwood, no. This also includes as well enterprises that our growing economy so sorely needs. For example, a Porsche dealership would be nice, a Gucci outlet, or a reputable swimming pool contractor. And we're talking in-ground, not above. That's what Barth Gimble's all about. I could use a tape recorder, too. Okay, and a tape recorder for Jerry. nothing to you. You've wasted that much on senseless parties. You've wasted much more in the San Sebastian mines. I'm afraid I can't slug. Money's tight right now. I've got too many expenses. Okay. So what do you want me to do, Frisco? Do you want me to beg? Because now I'm begging. <laughs> you don't know how. I thought that you of all people would understand. Then is it me that you want? Don't ask me such a thing, Dagny. If I ever meant anything to you, loan me the money that I need. I can't. What is this savior line gonna be called? The John Galt line. What? Because I am tired of hearing that name. It means quitting, giving up, and I am not giving up. I am not going to quit. I'm going to win. Well, what goes around comes around. We began our current theme with a criticism of Christia Freeland's uh, Fixing Capitalism article a few weeks back. And now this past week on August 13th, 2013 in the National Post, Peter Foster has written an editorial called 
Winer Take All in Toronto Centre, which was, of course, the federal riding he's talking about right now that was vacated by Bob Ray, and there's a by-election going on there. And writes Peter Foster, he says, I share a deficiency with that great cynic, H.L. Mencken. And that's what he says in his opening paragraph. And he says, that, that deficiency is a lack of envy. After which he cites, quote, two leading journalistic peddlers of envy, Christia Freeland, who is reportedly a shoe-in for the Liberal nomination, and Linda McQuaig, who is vying for the candidacy of the NDP. Naturally, these high-profile scribblers do not claim to be agents of envy. Ms. Freeland sees herself as an analyst of economic trends, Ms. McQuaig as an agent of social justice. They would presumably be even more reluctant to regard themselves as emotional primitives, rationalizing and exploiting cavemen, sorry, cave person assumptions in pursuit of their subconscious Machiavellian, Machiavellian urge to control the lives of others. Holy cow, I couldn't believe I'd hear that coming out of the pen of someone like uh, Peter Foster. Envy is not going away anytime soon, he writes. That's not just because it's hardwired, but because it is politically useful. Envy and indignation have arguably become outdated in a more benign way because inequality is no longer synonymous with unfairness. It is the inevitable result of unequal talent and application in a free and commercial society. It's no coincidence that Ms. Freeland's reflexive assumptions of ever-increasing wealth gaps, immiseration of the poor, and the disappearance of the middle class first appeared in the Communist Manifesto. I doubt that she is a student of Marx. Rather, like Marx, she bases her analysis on the conscious and subconscious aspirations of anti-capitalist tyrants and democratic redistributors for the past 150 years. Envious demonization of the capitalist rich amounts to demonization of those who drive the wealth and welfare of us all, writes Peter Foster in the National Post. And while all that is true, I think he's only scratched the surface on this one. Yes, he's, he, he has correctly identified this thing uh, that, that there is envy going on, but exactly what is it? What form does it take? And there's an amazing speech in, of course, Atlas Shrugged that everybody refers to as Galt's speech. It's a long chapter that almost is a book on its own. And it's a speech that is read by John Galt when he takes over the airwaves and then, then reads it to all the public. Everybody hears it on every station. A little science fiction, if you want, my opinion, actually. But what he says in his speech, part of that refers to this very issue. And he says, quote, They do not want to own your fortune. They want you to lose it. They do not want to succeed. They want you to fail. They do not want to live. They want you to die. They desire nothing. They hate existence. And they keep running, each trying not to learn that the object of his hatred is himself. They are the essence of evil. They, those anti-living objects who seek by devouring the world to fill the selfless zero of their soul. It's not your wealth that they're after. Theirs is a conspiracy against the mind, which means against life and man. And that's from John Gall's speech in Atlas Shrugged. Now, from her actual essay, 
called The Age of Envy, which was published in a, another book called The New Left by Ayn Rand. She wrote, quote, Today we live in an age of envy. Envy is not the emotion I have in mind, but it's, it is the clearest manifestation of an emotion that has remained nameless. It is the only element of a complex emotional sum that men have permitted themselves to identify. Envy is regarded by most people as petty, superficial emotion, and therefore it serves as a semi-human cover for so inhuman an emotion that those who feel it seldom dare admit, even to themselves, that they're feeling it. That emotion is hatred of the good for being the good. It means hatred of a person for possessing a value or virtue that one regards as desirable. Now, she goes out of her way to point out she's not not talking about hating somebody whose values are different from yours, that they're calling something good that you would call bad. No, she's saying that you actually hate somebody because they are good by your own standards. That's the strange thing about it. To be exact, she says, the emotional mechanism is not set in reverse, but is set one way only. Its exponents do not experience love for evil men. Their emotional range is limited to hatred or to indifference. It is impossible to experience love, which is a response to values, when one's automated response to values is hatred. In any specific instance, this type of hatred is heavily enmeshed in rationalizations. The most common one is, I don't hate him for his intelligence, but for his conceit. And boy, do I hear that a lot when it's related to certain people who are famous, who become uh, rich. They could be sports figures. They, you know, I don't don't hate him because he's great at sports, but because he knows he's great at sports, and that's the thing you're not supposed to ever dare mention in this whole scenario. So, speaking of, you know, people that we want to demonize, that's what's coming up next. Got a message from Mark Emery this past week, and um, I'm going to update you on that following this, but this actually speaks to our topic today, and that's why I brought it up on today's show, and we'll return right after this. That is correct. The first train on the John Galt line will run July 22nd. Great news. Thank you, Dagny. My pleasure. Thank you. Dagny, this is uh, Mr. Brady, a delegate from the Union of Locomotive Engineers. You're busy. I'll be brief. We're not going to allow you to run that train on the John Galt line. Get out of here. You do not come into my office and tell me what you will or will not allow what me I to do. What I meant to say was that a committee has decided that allowing men to run your train on that untested metal would violate their human rights. Are you serious, Mr. Brady? You can't force men to go out and get killed just for profit. Put that in writing. That you want to stop your men from working and earning a wage. Ms. Taggart, you don't understand. Oh, no, 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 I understand perfectly. You want me to provide the jobs, and you want to make it impossible for me to have any jobs to provide. You can do whatever you want with your men, Mr. Brady, but that train will run if I have to drive the damn thing myself because, Mr. Brady, if that bridge collapses, there won't be any railroad left in existence. But if it does not collapse, no member of your union will ever get a job on the John Galt line. Now, are you going to forbid your men to run that train? I never used the word forbid. I'm only stating that you cannot force anyone to take that run. I would never force a man to do anything. I'll ask for volunteers. Then it will be my problem, not yours. I advise them to refuse. Do what you want, Mr. Brady. But leave them the choice.
Hi, I'm Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, and you're listening to 94.9 CHRW. I will never, ever give up until this city is freed first and this nation second from the terrible shackles of marijuana prohibition. Kick it! He wants to do what he thinks is right. I am dedicated enough to be willing to go to jail. This was a guy who didn't just break the law, he flouted the law. Mark Emery is, is very much a media creation. This is a war. It's a dirty war. For your right to I don't think I use the word megalomaniac lightly. But unwilling to compromise his ideals at any price. You say you got a real solution. He is a drug dealer. Now these guys are working for the United States. USA, go home. Mark was in jail because he's a political activist. That's why they went after him, is because of what he says, not because of what he was doing. This man is a hero. It's always been my destiny to do this, and it's been my destiny probably to go to jail for this. I am never going to stop. It is till liberty or till death. Wow, starring John Galt himself. Do I actually know this guy? <laughs> I just received permission yesterday morning from Mark Emery, the so-called Prince of Pot, currently serving time in a Mississippi prison, to share the following piece of correspondence with you. I'm actually raising this issue now not to discuss the pot issue, but to offer yet another example of the coming wave of what seems to be Ayn Rand hatred, and the form it will likely take ad hominem character assassinations of the people who publicly admire Ayn Rand. So I guess I'm setting myself up for something here, I don't know. And Mark's comments were also about the role of the fourth estate as a legitimate source of public information, an estate that includes writers and columnists like Gary Weiss that we were talking about, and your everyday average columnist. Mark's comments were certainly unsolicited in any way, and I thought Mark had no way of knowing I was discussing this very theme on our current run of Just Right Shows. When I was CC'd a copy of the correspondence, I asked Paul McKeever to ask Mark if I could quote him. Now, Paul McKeever is on a short list of approved people who are permitted to communicate with Mark while he's in jail. And uh, that's mostly because of the documentary that Paul himself produced on Mark Emery, his own documentary, called The Principle of Pot. And, uh, of course, all correspondence in and out of the jail is monitored and restricted, both in terms of length and in terms of certain content. And the funny thing is, as of this date, Mark and Paul have never met in person, though they've talked on the phone together a few times. One of those times, in fact, having been on this very show, while Mark was in the process of being extradited to the United States. If you want to hear that show, it's show number 137 online. And uh, that was when Mark appeared as a guest on the show, along with in-studio guest Paul McKeever. And you can hear them both online at justrightmedia.org. Again, show 137. That was back on January 28, 2010. Now, in an email exchange between Mark and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, uh, on the issue of the Citizen Mark documentary, which debuts tomorrow at the film festival in Montreal. That Montreal film festival actually begins today, believe it or not. And it's produced and filmed by a fellow named Roger Larry. Now, Mark has expressed his expectation that the documentary will be a complete smear attempt on him. Mark is, of course, still locked up in his Mississippi prison as a consequence of the Harper government having extradited him to the U.S., 
for ostensibly breaking American laws on Canadian soil, if that's not weird enough already. Mark was extradited and jailed more specifically for his public advocacy of legalizing pot. That was actually on the extradition papers, which is the singular distinction I think Mark had with all the hundreds of other pot seed sellers online in the country, as opposed to seed sellers who, like, don't do public advocacy, I guess. Or as opposed to, say, Justin Trudeau, who does advocacy but doesn't sell seeds online. Apparently it's okay to do one or the other, but not both. (laughs) We discussed all of these things on past broadcasts of the show. Now, I myself have to say, I've appeared in no fewer than three documentaries made on or about Mark Emery. The most recent being Roger Larry, Citizen Mark. And uh, we did the filming for that for a couple of, year, a couple of years ago already. It must be two years, maybe three. It's been a while now, and it's only getting released now. And before that, it was Paul McKeever's Principle of Pot, produced in uh, 2010. So that's getting pretty close to that same time period. And, of course, the first notable documentary on Mark Emery I appeared in was way back in the early 90s called Messing Up the System, which was produced by the late Chris Doty who is also known for his documentary on the storybook gardens, uh, Slippery the Seal, if you recall. Now, Messing Up the System was produced in Mark's pre-pot advocacy days and ends at the point where Mark parts ways with Freedom Party, all of his past political crusades like Sunday shopping, freedom of speech, and with the City of London itself as he departed on his world tour walkabout. It wasn't until a few years after Messing Up the System was produced that Mark returned to Canada, re-established himself in Vancouver, B.C., which is where he has resided since returning, at least until his extradition. And that's where he started cannabis culture, both the publication and the social and political culture surrounding it. And the rest is, as they say, a fascinating history that can be seen in amazing detail and insight in at least two of these three documentaries cited. We don't know about the third one for sure yet until after its release over the coming week in Montreal. Now all that's just a bit of history and background. Remember, this is not about the pot issue per se, but about the documentary film Citizen Mark, titled after Mark's own appreciation of the movie Citizen Kane and also the title of Chris Doty's play about Mark, um, which was also called just Citizen Mark. And on my first spotlight on Mark here on Just Right that we did way back on November 1st, 2007, believe it or not, uh, we called that one Citizen Mark Goes to Washington. So here it is, and this is Mark writing here. This was intended as personal con- correspondence directly to Paul McKeever, which is why I felt it appropriate to ask permission, of course, before I would read it on the air. And this is what he wrote to Paul. Quote, Oh, that Citizen Mark doc. Yikes, Jody is furious with how slanderous it is. By the way, Jody is Jody Emery, Mark's wife. She just hates it. I won't see it until I'm out. But of those who saw it in the previews, several wrote me about it, none liked it. It's a peculiar thing, too. As documentaries go, their purpose, as I see them, is to reveal an issue or circumstance that the public ought to know more about as a matter of public policy affecting people or the environment. Usually government or major vested interest is doing something that needs more light shone on it. A crisis of sorts is revealed and explained. Or perhaps a powerful individual or entity is doing something that has, has a widespread effect, for better or worse, that needs addressing. Interestingly, that very point was brought up in a conversation between myself and Robert Vaughn that we were having when our anti-capitalism theme began a few weeks ago. But Mark continues. 
Roger Leary's peculiar endeavor, the assertion that I am a megalomaniac narcissist out to self-aggrandize, is an odd theme, because I am not now or ever have been in elected office. I hold no power over anyone, nor have I ever. I have never advocated any legislation that would impose tribulation or obligation on anyone. I own no business entity with any pronounced impact on anyone, like in the movie Citizen Kane, where Kane owns a chain of powerful and critical newspaper and radio chains. I have used my own money to essentially promote my own pop, at times popular, sometimes not popular, agenda. The movie does not allude that I've heard anyone. If documentaries are supposed to alert people to the machinations of the powerful or to an imminent danger, then this this hit piece on me is odd indeed. Roger Larry has always been a bit obsessed with my I- ideology. And here, here's where it comes. He particularly despises Ayn Rand. At first, I thought this wouldn't make any difference in his research and filmmaking. But I was wrong. In one episode of Citizen Mark, he demonizes my mother as a tyrant based on my fond recollection of an amusing story. I used to tell my mom this story of my earliest recollection of my mom, me sitting on the potty at age one with my mom looming over me, clearly unimpressed that there's nothing in the potty, and we have to go somewhere. (laughs) It's a funny story, but when I tell this in the documentary, he actually gets a psychiatrist from UBC interviewed saying this kind of childhood trauma can lead to narcissism and a Jesus complex. And then this is embellished with a cartoon of my mom as a tyrant. And man, is that weird. I had a wonderful childhood, and I have only great memories of growing up with my parents, so demonizing my mom is really annoying. But it's one of the many annoying things in the documentary. Believe me, already there's universal agreement that your, referring to Paul McKeever, principle of pot, interpretation of Mark as Jesus' figure, is superior interpretation as well as superior filmmaking. And Roger received $700,000 to do this bad job. It is because Roger does harbor an anger against my Ayn Rand-inspired belief system, he was sending me these socialistic books in here and writing me emails that were all collectivist socialist stuff that I clearly was not having any part of it. But I'm sure the investors of that 700000 are really disappointed. It's poorly done with huge gaps and omissions as well as fruitless avenues taken. Much is made of my womanizing or attraction to women. Though, as a private citizen... I'm not named Pastor Emery or Reverend Emery and not in elected office and previously on film record as being in favor of as as much sex as one can get and hardly a poster boy for monogamy. (laughs) Oh, well, it will indulge the haters, and that bothers Jody, but such things happen. If I were you, again referring to, to Paul McKeever, wherever you see the promotion for Citizen Mark, advertise your DVDs of The Principle of Pot because it's a good sales opportunity. Your documentary is going to be superior in every way. Many people who are quoted in the film have been disappointed how their quotes were used out of context and focused on my sexual or womanizing attributes, which in every interviewee's case made up a very small and minor part of the interview. I'll be serious, or I'll be curious to see what you think, Paul, of you and of your and Bob's comments referring to me in this case. 
end quote. And as will I, I will be curious to see what's going to come out of this movie in terms of what comments they're going to leave in or whether they left all of my stuff on the floor. Uh, I shot for no less than three hours for that movie, so I've, I've got some time put into this. And I got suspicious when they, when they posed me around all these stuffed um, tigers, black and white tigers. So I'm thinking, what are they trying to do with this scene? But uh, it might be a while before I get a chance to see it. But... Um, you know, there you see the same pattern again, that irrational hatred of Ayn Rand combined with an attack on the people who are attracted to her ideas. And if Gary Weiss has done anything, author of Ayn Rand Nation, he has driven one point home to me, and that's only good news, that Ayn Rand does in fact matter. Now, just in closing now, running out of time here, but the Montreal Film Festival is running from today till September 2nd. Citizen Mark is... Uh, it's a color pr a production. It's uh, filed under Documentaries of the World, and I notice they have um, scheduled projections, and they are tomorrow, Saturday, and Monday. So if anyone's in the Montreal area, uh, Friday, August 23rd, 7 p.m., Saturday, August 24th, 12, 20 p.m., and Monday, August 26th at 7 p.m. You can see all this and just search for it online. Google uh, either for Mark Emery or I guess just Google Citizen Mark. And, uh, and actually, you can Google Citizen Mark Preview and actually see the preview that we just played the audio um, to. So I'm just very curious to see how that's going to happen. More on Ayn Rand Nation on a future broadcast of Just Right. And if you happen to be in Montreal this weekend, check out Citizen Mark and give us a shout to tell us what you thought, especially about that 10-second part with me in it, okay? Is that the best part or what? Uh-oh, better get out of here before I get accused of being a megalomaniac or something like that. I mean, consider the name of the show. Hey, better go before you think about it too much. Let's go. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. My next guest was uh, a major kingpin in the New York underworld. He was finally arrested. Those courts, they do their job. And he was sent away to jail where he served 18 long months. After paying his debt to society, he decided to go straight. He has his own chain of hardware stores and is uh, planning on opening a branch right here in Fernwood. Uh, please welcome Mr. Mario Dorsey. Overcame that grief, though, and certainly made a success of the hardware store business. And in fact, you've expanded several times. I sure have. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't mind competition. I really enjoy it, but you got to face it. We, we give them the best service in town. Yeah, you must have done a very good job, because when you first went to Maxwell, there were three or four hardwares in town, and yours is the only one surviving now, right. is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great service there. Yeah.